0: Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. We're talking about diversity and thinking about what different sorts of companies, different parts of the real estate development, construction, architecture professions could do to create some positive action in the face of many of the things that we're seeing play out across different societies at the minute. And I'm joined by two fascinating guests, by Martin prince Power, who's founder at Suburban Workshop, which is a suburban residential development business, and by Moiwa Oki, who's architectural at mace and a candidate for the Riva presidency martin let's start with you when we're thinking about
1: action that companies should take what does that look like this is a brand new frontier i think it's incredible that we're having this conversation in general at scale i think that needs to be recognized i also think it needs to be recognized that for a lot of businesses All of the challenges that they have at sort of C-suite and even below are significant, especially given the current climate. And so to add this onto their plate and for them to take it on seriously, I think, Mm. should be celebrated. Now, what can they actually do? I think they need to be very honest first with themselves about what their track record is to date and whether they really want to change it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So in terms of your business, what Mm. are you looking to change? So Suburban Workshop. Yeah as the name suggests, Mm -hmm. is a uh, suburban-focused business developing resi for sale. Correct, amongst other things, yeah. uh, Amongst other things. So what are you looking to change with that business?
1: I'm basically looking to change, first, the operating model of developers, not reinventing the wheel, but changing the core principles behind it. So I started Suburban Workshop because my background as an architect, I noticed when I was in a development role, I saw things differently. It didn't mean I came to different conclusions. It meant that the way I communicated, the way I was able to bring stakeholders along on the journey, the way I was able to basically get to a place where people understood why we had arrived at where we were and felt actually positive about it, demonstrated to me that it's as much how you do things as what you do. I'm not going to be, you know, of course, my aspirations for the product is high, but It's really more about the way I'll do things. So, for example, in a post-pandemic world, all of our units will have space for home working and home learning. During the design and development process, we will actively look to engage charities, local organizations, schools in the process. And then crucially, because some of my funding, at least on the equity side, is private, a lot of my private investors are actually quite diverse in their backgrounds as well. So from yeah. top to bottom, from inception to product, I'd say you've got a slightly different way of doing things.
0: Yeah. Um, Moya, from your perspective at MACE and as a REBA presidential candidate, what should diversity look like in the sectors that we're touching? Does it need to be representative of the whole of society? Is that a realistic ambition? And what role should private businesses have? You know, is it? for businesses to deal with some of these fundamental issues that are societal, really. If you think about education, the socioeconomic inequality that we see, those are often cited by people as the reasons that some of these
2: breakdowns exist. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. What does diversity look like? And I think it's not an answer that you can give, like you can set like a 2050, we want to see, you know, 50% black or whatever ethnic group here. Yes, you can do that. But if you have like 50% black people who all came from the same neighborhood in a particular industry, you're not getting that sort of diversity. I think diversity is a little bit more like intersectional. So it cuts through to like uh, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic background, gender, race, and all those other attributes, rather I, than
0: intersexual being some sort of new sort of fandango <laughs> with aliens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's uh, not have a podcast, I think. Yeah.
2: And I think, so the second part of your question was like, where does this sort of private um, Yeah. What should the role be for companies? Because
0: companies, businesses, I mean, this is something I want to touch on with yeah. both of you, but I think one of the challenges that the companies face is, you know, you see all these firms changing their corporate colours on their Twitter page during Pride Month. Yeah. And yeah. you know, you look at some of these firms and you think, mm, okay. You know, we've all yeah. kind of looked at think, oh, really?
2: No, but I think it's going further than but that's a good thing. That's a good thing. it's I mean, a good, thing. Yes, it's a good thing, thing to do that. that, that. You've got yeah. big accountancy firms yeah. and banks doing
0: that. Because they've yeah. never done it when Before, we were kids, would they? Let's be frank. Yeah. But I'm yeah. but I'm saying what should the role of the private sector be? What you know when you're speaking to your bosses at Mace and Martin, you're speaking to partners and developers and other people in the marketplace what should they be doing? Because a lot of people probably want to do stuff, and I come from the position that you know most people are actually good mm. and good-hearted, but are a little bit... They're like, why the bloody hell do I start? And if I say anything wrong, I'm going to get pilloried. If I use the wrong word, I'm going to get a you know, tidal wave of social media abuse. And some people are just like, wow, I like don't know where to start. Do you, I mean, do you register that? Am I, am no,
1: if- 100%. I mean, I, I think it's a tall order, and as I said before, I think we're at a new frontier. I think in terms of what businesses can actually do, I think you referenced it, Andrew, there's a pipeline question there. If you take an architecture course, for example, I think you have a dropout rate between, you know, what, 20 to 30% after year one. If that 20, 30%, in terms of the distribution of, say, you know whether it's social and economic background, it's well, going architecture to be the poor kids, it, aren't it? Let's be frank. Yeah. It's, it, it, no, yeah, it's, yeah, it's an expensive course to do. Yeah, then yeah. you're kind of left with the regular, and I, I think we have to be mature and we have to basically say, look, there's only so much businesses can do. The other side of that is: Are they doing everything that they can do? Are they making sure that their recruitment is blind, for example, with regard to names? I think there's studies which have shown that if you have a foreign name, you're less likely to be called for an interview. Getting me to read yeah, your yeah. CVs, I, I can't yeah. see out my right eye. I, <laughs> uh, I can't
0: see the first line of the uh, of the optometry chart with my right eye, so I can just go in and read the CVs for you. Yeah. You yeah, get a yeah, CV yeah. from me, seems yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you're right. I, mean, I asked this question once to the senior HR lady at one of the big professional services firms. She sort of looked to me, like I was an alien. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of
2: these intersexual beings we were mm. just talking about. No. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's pretty easy stuff, isn't it? Some of it. Well, in terms of the pipeline thing, I think corporate and um, private businesses do focus on that quite a lot. And there have been a big increase in charities and groups that are trying to solve that issue. And I think it's a noble issue to solve. And I think that's, yes, that's, we should be looking at that. But also I think, one of the reasons why I'm actually going for the RIBA president thing is to actually say that, you know, as a generation, The profession should stick his the, head. The, in the his profession pocket. is to stick his head above the parapet. But also there are roles in sort of higher office where there should be more representation in, and no one talks about that. You know, like for example, Mace and companies that I've worked at before is predominantly sort of white, middle class male hmm. demographic. And for all the talk for 10 years, they talked about, you know, one diversity and this and that and the other, you know, we wanted a pipeline and things like that. But you don't see there's no the shift of the lever doesn't move to the senior leadership. And I mean, diversity for me, I, I sort of always
0: joke diversity for me means having lots of really average black men, lots of really average white women in senior roles, just as you've got loads of really average white men in senior roles. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, that's certainly. But
0: being kind of semi-serious, yeah. yeah, Because ultimately, you know, that's the thing. Is actually normalizing the stuff is about making these things routine, right?
1: I mean, what you're talking about is the idea of being different, not being noteworthy. Which I think is great. I mean, someone once said to me their aspiration was for someone to be allowed from, you know, uh, an underrepresented group to basically be allowed to enter into a position of power to fail and for their failure to be attributed to their lack of competence Mm. and not to their background in any way. So they didn't fail because they were black or because they were Asian or because they were a woman or because they were disabled. They just weren't very good. Mm. And I think when we get there, then we... I mean, not all problems are solved, but I think things become a lot more fair. And I think it's probably important mm. to sort of emphasise that you know when people advocate for diversity, they aren't advocating for preferential treatment. They're advocating for a fair shot, for a fair assessment of their skills and their abilities. And a lot of that frustration is born out of the fact that people have been of superior ability, superior intellect, and even still have hit either a concrete ceiling or a glass ceiling depending on where they were in the company yeah
0: yeah but I suppose a lot of the challenges are that the opportunities to become better skilled aren't open to people from particular groups and, and this was something we were talking about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with the MD for people at Canary Wharf group and we were talking about cognitive disability and also some of the thinking that we're doing here as a business of Blackstock around a campaign on invisible disability I, I talk sometimes on this podcast about my own visual impairment. I've got a genetic eye condition called retinitis pigmentosa that has held me back in some areas. It makes it much harder to meet people in dark bars. So, I've, you know, I've been very faithful to <laughs> so my wife for yeah. the last 10 years. Um, but, um, you know, it's a struggle. You know, it's a struggle not being able to see very well in the business. that's all about networking. Yeah. And I think, you know, in our business, we've got other people... As well, that have got not similar issues, but other issues, and so yeah. I, you know, I can't obviously speak to being black because I'm a white Jewish bloke, but I can speak to some of those facets of diversity, and I think I certainly want to look at just gaining a bit more exposure, and a bit more conversation around some of those sorts of things, because you know, with things like visual impairment and and other invisible disabilities there are a lot of grants and things that exist and and much like some of what we're talking about today people just don't really know how to raise it sometimes And I think that's the thing is that you're right a lot of these boards are white men of a certain age and a certain background and they've got a bloody clue how to how to engage with the debate so give us a couple of tips I mean that's that would be good things to come away from this conversation for people listening to this that may be tuning to this podcast because they're interested in you know how to cut through it because they you know see a lot of lecturing and I think you know, when people are lectured to, they just switch off.
1: They do switch off, yeah. Resistance actually increases. There's lots of studies around that. If I was to say anything, I would first say, I think in practice, diversity is about a diversity of background and experience. And I think that allows you to include more people in the conversation as possible. I'd also say that you should probably look at diversity in the same way that you would look at genetic fitness in any group. The more variety there is in the group, the more ability that, that group has to survive. If you have lots of different perspectives in the room, it means you have fewer blind spots. In terms of what you can actually do, I think there is a case for trying to identify what skills are lacking and whether those skills can be filled by someone else Mm. who's different. I would also say in terms of tips, be aware of, and it's a very human thing, promoting or giving preference to people who are very similar to you. It's common, it's easy, we all get along. I think we get along in this group, in this room, fine. We're more likely to meet each other again. But if someone is from a different background, that can be jarring. So just challenging yourself to say, okay, they're very different. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe difference is a good thing.
2: Yeah, and I'll back up on what Martin just said. I think we need to be comfortable in being uncomfortable a little bit of the time. And I'll add to that and say, listening or hearing Coming from personal experience, in my previous practice, I set up this multi-ethnic group and allies network, and it was all about championing and uplifting ethnic voices within the 600 people practice. Mm. In cohort with our partners, we set up this thing called Diversity Week, where one week in a year, every year, we just talk about the different types of intersectional, diverse topics that we want to talk about, like race like yeah. Um, yeah. And, and everything. And I think just having the partners listen from the perspective of the individuals or the groups and say, this is what it looks like to be a black person working in an architecture or a Chinese person working in in architecture in your company. This is what we feel like when X, Y, Z happens in the world. This is how we feel like. So, you know, how do you deal with that as a company? How do you make us feel better or make us feel part of the group? So I think that element of listening, listening and then putting something into action, like whether it is the diversity week or putting in place things that can make a larger section of your community or your group, your workforce, feel more comfortable working with you.
1: Really? So, yeah, I think that's correct, Moira. I mean, I think studies have shown that when the topic of diversity is imposed on the group, increases resistance despite whether the intent is there to resist but this is what not. Jane
0: said on the Canary Wharf podcast. She was talking about just how targets are a bit of a waste of time.
1: Yeah, I mean, they can be, but it's also the execution. I mean, so I read this fantastic study. I think it was in Coca-Cola. You know, we're talking about practical tips. What they found was when you charged unit leaders or studio leaders or people with reports directly to them. You charge them with, they went this far as recruiting and retaining people who don't fit the majority description of the employment team or the workforce. Retention and motivation and drive and ownership from the leaders increased despite their background. And the reason for that is you're framing those leaders as being part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And so their retention of, I think it's particularly African Americans, women, Hispanic women, went through the roof because there were two sides to it. It wasn't only just that we care about diversity and, you know, look at our posters and our website. It was that those leaders were charged. And I don't know if they were bonused against it. Probably not. That feels a bit gross, but I could understand why you might want to try it out. They were convinced to be part of the solution. And you had people within, you know, a context which may not be familiar to them as a minority, Mm. feeling like they had a sponsor. Mm. And when you have that dynamic, you you get an exchange of experiences, which is really what this is all about. It's diversity of experiences and a range of experiences. So as a new entry and as a new member of the Coca-Cola family, you had someone who fit the majority description. Saying, hey, look, this may not make sense to you, but this is the way Coca Cola does things. And this is why Coca Cola does things. And, you know, actually, now I'm talking to you, I can see why it it may not be the best or not. So you've got that person having an education on how to perform in a mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream context. And then you've got this person also being able to confide and say, look, this makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm. That makes me feel uncomfortable.
0: And what do you think the architecture profession needs to do? at a professional level to respond. And you know, you've obviously come out of being architects into non-architecture businesses. I mean, you're still a practicing architect, I guess. But but my point is that MACE isn't an architecture practice, right? They're a a contractor come in developer in some instances. When I talk about the architecture profession, I also mean the real estate world. Mm -hmm. How could they respond in a similar way? Because something like Coca-Cola has so many thousands of employees some argument would say it's a bit easier to do some of these sorts of things yeah. just given the scale, right? And, you know, in, in a lot of, even though Mace is a big company, but it's you're not
2: going to have a huge amount of... It's not Coca-Cola, let's say. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. In response to that, if I target it just to the sort of traditional architectural practice, I think you need to put money where your mouth is. What you say, and you need to like back it up with capital, right? And in that it is paying your workers a living wage, you know? And this is one of the reasons why I'm campaigning for the RIBA president, so that the membership organization, the RIBA, actually has put some teeth into the code of conduct so that the younger future architect isn't scared off from being an architect because there's, I read this AJ article that 48% of architectural assistants who worked in practice didn't want to continue qualify as an architect because of that experience that they had the challenging experience that they well, had purely because it's so badly paid so badly paid and the sort of mm. life balance is just destroys morale mm. and you just and to what degree
0: let me put this to both of you given that you're now essentially client side on these things to what degree is that a client issue as well because architects have essentially gone on this race to the bottom in terms of fees over the last 10 plus years yeah but that's largely because you know you guys both for developers essentially uh, say well hang on uh, you need to chip your fee mate
1: yeah um so you know it, it's easy to wrong. say
0: it's easy to say well architects are at fault for not having any poor kids qualifying as architects yeah. but if the people who predominantly read property week were paying our architects more money yeah then maybe there's a joint agreement there yeah i think that's a- again as you both said as we all agree right if you've got people from different socioeconomic backgrounds designing more schemes we'd have better buildings.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a slightly different conversation. I mean, it was a point I was going to make, Moira, about the economics of, of architecture. The question Do our clients culpable for architects' low fees? Yes, I think there's a correlation there. I think the other side of the equation that you spoke about, Moira, was the fact that the work-life balance was rubbish. And I think that we've both experienced scenarios in which yep. it isn't so much that salary isn't sufficient, although it's a frequent complaint. It's that it's insufficient compared to the amount of work. Mm. I think there's a lot of work that architecture practices need to do around briefing, around controlling and managing their clients, and around their internal processes to make sure they're efficient. Yeah. I, as a developer, as an ex-architect...
0: Mm. You came from Gensler and is one of the biggest businesses
1: on the planet. Yes, it is, yeah, if not the biggest. But it's, it's really... As a client, I try to be a good client. You know, I try to make sure I pay fairly. But I also know that I have a responsibility to make sure that the team is doing things once, maybe twice. Mm. I'm not asking for a billion options. And I think that in a lot of particularly large practices, the idea that, you know, lower paid junior staff are a resource that you can sort of throw at the blockades like the Russians do with their soldiers um, <laughs> is I think it's an old school idea. And I think it needs to die. Yes. This idea that because you've only just come out of university, you haven't earned the right to have a social life, I hmm. think is is rubbish. And I think that needs to die.
0: Is there not a degree? I mean, some people will listen to this and, and ask the question, is that not just generation of snowflake moaning? Should people not just have to accept it to make your career in any business, whether that's property, development, construction, architecture, yeah, the media? No. Tech, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you've got to graft your way up. You've got to accept yeah, the fact you're yeah. not going to be paid brilliantly for the first few years. You've got to accept the fact that you've got late nights, making friends, going out and getting on the circuit. And that that is called building a career. And that's what it used to be and has always been. Is that, that is what some people will say Yeah,
2: but I think it's the excessive nature of it. The work of an architect is evolving and the amount of like information we are generating, just to begin with, it's come on leaps and like quadrupled, multiplied by a factor of X. And because we have all these, these sort of new shiny gadgets that we can produce more information, we are basically, you know, flogging the horse to get it done because it's achievable yeah, yeah and and the ideology that you have to work really hard especially when you come out of university yes that is true and people or architects I'm mean coming from the architect's perspective we do have that passion mm. and um, yeah. and I think the excessiveness of the type of work that alienates this cohort of people is something that reduces or diminishes the passion many then compared to the amount of pay you get remunerated for, so it just does not stack up. And then you compare it to like a different profession. So you move to a lawyer who does almost not similar, but they have to work hard for what they do. But again, when you then compare it to like, okay, at the end of the day, what do I get paid for this? You can say that you can, it stacks up to your daily Yeah, yeah no, I get that. Expenses. And, and um, yeah,
0: although there'll be some lawyers listening to this will also moan, but then yeah, that, that's where we are, right? I mean, I'm interested just to, you know, to bring things to a close, we haven't talked that much about race, and that's something I'd like to touch on a little bit and get an idea, I suppose, from your own backgrounds, you're obviously both British with different sorts of heritage. Tell us about your own heritage, Martin, and how you define your own identity. And I suppose the second question is about racism that you might have experienced both in your life and in your professional career.
1: Um, so I guess I'd probably say I'm British. I have Nigerian heritage through my parents. I came here when I was very young. Uh, what, not quite two, I'd probably say. So I've spent almost my entire life in the UK and I very much see it as my home. There was a period of time when I was growing up when I... Sort of romanticised Nigeria as being maybe it's the place where things are a bit fairer. One holiday there sort of showed me that I was British through and through uh, because <laughs> I wasn't anything like. Were well, you complaining about the tea? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was complaining about the tea. It was too hot for me, or all, all, all that sort of stuff. Just walking around, I just stood out, and that was sort of a watershed moment for me in sort of owning my Britishness. And you know, I think. Being an ethnic minority, particularly from a former Commonwealth country, owning your Britishness isn't as straightforward, depending on what your perspectives are. My personal view is that so I have a like a military tradition in my family. The men in my family have fought for Britain through all of the world wars. you know more your Sunday means as much to me despite the lack of representation of African regiments as it does to everybody else. And I'm proud that they answered the call when, you know, tyranny was on the rise in Europe and they fought to defend freedom, just the same as everybody else. So I think, for me, being British is an inclusive identity in and of itself. I think Englishness is probably a little bit more exclusive, but I do think it's a personal journey you need to go on. Mm -hmm. In terms of my experiences in the industry, or whether there's racism or not, I think, and I hope you don't mind, me, Moira, we both have nigerian backgrounds we are both effectively first generation immigrant anyone will tell you at least within the black community that as a nigerian or as someone with an african descent your view on race is different your experience of race is different i'm almost certain there have probably been racist experiences that i've had that i just haven't registered because Race just doesn't matter as much to me as a person. It's not the way I define myself. It's not the main vector that I use to define myself, despite what other people might think. And so it doesn't hurt me as much. I have a heritage and a background and a culture which I can draw on. And it doesn't really feature slavery. It features colonialism, for better or for worse. But it doesn't really feature slavery and that makes my experience different to say someone who has a caribbean background yeah. for example so i think it's important to recognize that And i think particularly you know Moya and i we have similar backgrounds we could fill the room with all the different diaspora experiences of, yeah. of of black people it's
0: an interesting observation that i guess you wouldn't necessarily consider but i suppose the point you're making is that if there has been racism in your professional career it's been
1: subtle is That what you're um, saying? Well, or, it's well. I, I'm. Well, or are you saying you've overlooked it? Uh, I just, I just don't dwell on it, really. That's um,
0: clear, but and that's a positive thing. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's it's one thing just to kind of say, actually, look, I'm bigger than this. I don't give a shit. That's uh, great. Uh, but I'm just trying to get a sense of how. Existing is obviously a sample size of two is not a particularly great yeah, representative sample. But um, people see these surveys and they read these articles saying oh, racism is rife in this, that and the other. Yeah, mm-hmm. And it's just sometimes it's impossible to really get a sell on whether those sample sizes are particularly representative or not.
1: If your question is, have I experienced racism in my career? I'd say yes. If your question is, have I observed racism in my career? I'd say yes, several times.
0: And how recently? That's essentially what I'm asking both of those things.
1: Uh, Okay, how recently? And I'm interested Um,
0: in whether things have changed, whether you feel the feeling that things have changed has existed since all of the BLM campaigning kicked off.
1: I can't comment, I don't know. I haven't paid a great deal of attention to it, to be honest. Hmm. I never have, I, I doubt I ever will. So I'll have to pass the mic. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, so Moira, in terms of your own views there, what's your perception in terms of either witnessing racism around you, experiencing it yourself? And I'm interested again, just to draw on your own background, where you grew up and how that's informed your perspective on some of these things.
2: Well, similar to Martin's, I am a first generation Brit. We, My family moved here a little bit later than uh, Martin did. but. um when we did move here, I think there's this sort of ingrained racism or sort of willingness to fit in, in the past, where I think if we look at it with today's lens, we would have thought that feeling of being outsiders and trying to, you know, talk like, uh, because I grew up in Nigeria and um, I felt like I needed to quote unquote, whiten my voice the way I talk Mm. to be able to fit in, into school and college and things like that. And in hindsight, you probably think that feeling, whoever made you feel that way was, that's in itself was racism. When you just sort of like look at through your life, you just go and sort of pick out these instances where As a young kid, I didn't see it as racism at the time, but looking back in hindsight, it was. How recent did that happen? I think in the last five years or something like that. But like Martin, I try not to have, make that the core of who I am, Mm. a Brit. Where did you live in England when you moved here? Um, South London. So I think it's just a sense of awareness within the black community as well, because some of those sort of ideologies and cultures of like, denigrating African culture was actually perpetuated by Africans and- Well, that's uh, the irony of some of these things. Yes, exactly. But we're living in that sort of environment where to be right is to be English. I think we're all slowly figuring out that it's all right to be who you are. And it's all right to be an African with an African accent and you will be able to get a job. Because some of those ideas were like, well, you need to change your name, maybe change, change your name to Bob Slater. Yes, exactly. <laughs> to, have, to get a job. And that was like the prevailing ideology. And I think now we're getting ourselves away from all of that and figuring out that you can still run for president for the RIVA with a name like Moewe. I think you really recognize the, how far we have come over the past 10 years of me being a professional and 20 years of me being
0: in the UK. It's a pretty cool name. I mean, you're not going to have more than one or two in the room at any one time. Andrew, there's loads of them. Martin's loads of them. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Actually, no, there isn't as many as you think. More than we'd like. uh, Let me ask this, then, as as we bring things to a close. It's a fascinating discussion. What does a post-racism world look like, Martin?
1: Yes, it's an idea I've tried to conceive of. So the example I'd give is the way that sort of men or groups of men, groups of male friends make fun of each other. And from the outside, you can see roasting, as it's sometimes called, as being very, very harsh. But it's one of the ways that we express friendliness, intimacy, camaraderie. Well, and... imagine
0: you were talking about an army background, and that's a good example, right? Yeah, yeah well, precisely.
1: <laughs> and so basically what's common is that you take the mick out of each other, sometimes brutally, but what's inherent in that is... A sense of trust. You know, you know when your friend takes to make out of the length of your legs or the size of your eyes or the size of your nose or sometimes even the darkness of your skin that it's coming from a place of affection. It's not coming from a, a mean place. And I think that humour is one of the ways that we're able to be vulnerable and also demonstrate trust. So what does this sort of, you know, post race society look like to me? I think it looks like different comedians of different ethnicities being able to make fun out of another ethnicity and for people of that other ethnicity to find it funny because they feel inherently that it's coming from a good place and it's an observation that they have made of that group and it's not meant as a criticism or an attack and we're all able to take in good spirit and I think that's the optimum. I don't think it's about us all being the same or all accepting every aspect you don't even accept every aspect of your brothers and sisters <laughs> so let alone you know people from the other side of the world but i think at the core of it the idea that for better or for worse we've got each other's back even if we don't always see eye to eye and that there's that trust and that I respect there that's what it looks like to me and
0: hmm. well, what about you Moy?
2: well i want to
1: back a couple of what martin said
2: but i don't think we're going to be in a post-racial society. Because I think race will always be there. The different colors of skin and the different heritages will still play a factor. Until we're ruled by robots, yes. Um, until we're ruled by robots, exactly. I mean, but it's, to I mean, there's been studies about like the people who code the robots and have great yeah, racism. But I think where we want to be is where it doesn't matter as much. Yes, well, we you did, don't
0: have to call yourself Bob Slater to go for a job. Yes, is.
2: exactly, um, and we're moving towards there, but then we keep coming backwards a little bit and then going forwards because, you know, things are never you know in a straight line. I think everyone feels a little bit more comfortable around each other, and I think maybe it is to do with the humor and joking, but we just need to be in a place where everyone is accepted and the differences are celebrated.
1: I just, yeah, sorry, just to make one more point. I mean. I think we had a good discussion about this before we came on and i think we all agreed that another definition was the idea that someone was allowed to ascend to a you know high office or position of responsibility and they're allowed to be mediocre or fail in that position and that the criticism of them is connected purely to their competence and their inability to perform that role and never because they were either a woman or because they were black or because they had a working class background or because they had Mm. a disability or because they had autism. It wasn't those things which they'd never really chose for themselves. It was the decisions that they made when they were given that opportunity. I think that's only fair.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, it's where it's like your human characteristics aren't the thing that just define you.
1: And that's where I think I sometimes find issues around the language around diversity, because it's quite often, it's very much about bringing difference to the fore. And I think that there are a whole host of reasons why, you know, we talk about the Bob Slaters, and I think that's an extreme example. But if you join a bank, for example, there is a reason why a bank, or bankers present themselves in a particular way. It's all about trust and competence and projecting certain qualities and values. And I think if you were to lean into the idea that you know every profession kind of has its own culture, uniform, blah, 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 you shouldn't really be seen as you losing a part of your identity to try and perform in that group. Because the reality is that group isn't going to change just because you showed up your ability to influence where that group operates will be directly contingent on your ability to perform within that group. Mm. And so complying with the mainstream or dealing with the mainstream, or you know, if you enter property speaking like a property person, for example, I think it should be encouraged. and I think it should be celebrated and pushed. Because if you are from a different background, it's one of the ways that you can have common ground with someone. Well, I've spent the last a nearly
0: 20 years losing my Ilford accent. Yeah. You know, people joke, what school did you go to, Andrew? No, <laughs> Ilford
1: Jewish Primary, mate. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, precisely. But, but
0: I, I guess that gets quite contentious sometimes, though, where people see that need to change their self as an affront. to their... Identity, yeah, and and it's... it's, So where do you
1: draw that line? Because it's a difficult
0: position for people,
1: right? Yeah, I don't think it's a line that I can unilaterally say where it should be drawn. I think it's a very personal decision. I know that sometimes I've always really admired, I mean... Please excuse the tangent. I love watching Game of Thrones because of how many different English accents there are represented. I love <laughs> hearing a Geordie accent or a Lancashire accent on screen, and the fact that the most British production is just all RP. I mean, I'm not changing that fact, but yeah, it's you don't all exactly RP. Sound so. like deepest darkest Coventry, <laughs> mate? <laughs> no, no, but that makes a difference. And yeah, I just think that you know, when in Rome do as the Romans do, I don't think is bad advice, particularly in where we are at this point in the conversation. I think the conversation will continue to evolve. I think where we are now is, I think it was, um, Swan once called it, we're we're in the pioneer phase. As Moira identified, we're not yet seeing the difference in leadership. I think once you have the difference in leadership, then we'll move into a different phase, which would be like, is there more balance within the workforce? Are we recruiting properly? Blah, 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 blah. But I genuinely don't feel like until leadership becomes more diverse that we will see change not because the desire isn't there but because it's really hard to think about what it's like to enter the world of property as a woman when you're male yeah and i think trying to is probably (laughs) going to go wrong yeah absolutely
0: well i agree with that well thank you martin prince parrot who's founder at suburban workshop to moira oki who's architectural manager at mace group and you can see moira's Application and his campaigning for Reva President, if you go to the Reva website, there'll be a nice video there you can watch and and absolutely get in touch with both of these gents via their linkedins via their websites um, thank you very much for listening and this is a topic we want to come back to so please get in touch if you've got any suggestions for ways in which we can take this conversation forward if you've got any great guest suggestions for other really cool upcoming intelligent people that we can have on that would be brilliantly received so thanks so much for listening you can subscribe to Propcast podcast via spotify soundcloud apple wherever you get your podcasts from keep listening thanks for coming along each week and we'll see you again soon うん。